97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm Hello and welcome to the Science of Fiction. Today we're going to be talking about cryptography and I'm joined by Will. Hello. And James. Hi. So uh, James very nicely brought along Enigma Machine, so we're going to be geeking out on that and he's going to be showing it to us. Because uh, we've moved studio, we're not actually going to be able to show on the webcam, but we're going to do some photography and some awesome fun things like that, so you'll be able to catch up on that. Uh, do send your questions in using the studio player, but I think the plan is to go straight into our first song. So um, catch up with you after this. camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm 
Hello and welcome back. That was... That was Codebreaker by Tongue, which uh, is actually about um, figuring out how DNA works, not, not about cryptography, but it's kind of a similar challenge, so it seemed appropriate. Yeah, I mean, DNA is a code of sorts. It's Maybe. not really... Some, I suppose I had to crack it at one point. Well, I, it's not my sort of code. So I'm, a, I'm a mathematician. I'm going to be talking about mathematical codes today. Yes, and, as, and the Enigma machine has been brought out, and I am just in awe of this. I've just discovered Enigma machines have a little Enigma logo on them. Oh, yeah, I love that. So it's a brand. It's a product. It, it was a company that made them. So it is branded, you know, and it's quite an attractive logo. Um, to describe it... Uh, it's kind of like the Darwin fish, isn't oh, well, it? Well, I was just thinking it reminds me of the Christian fish on the back of yeah, cars. Yeah, 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 that's right. And uh, so, But with the word enigma in it instead. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's like Coca-Cola or Nike's. It's branded, it's got a logo, and it's designed to be sold. It's designed to, be, to sound cool. So is, was it designed principarily for the military? or Not initially. So uh, the Enigma machine was invented in 1918, which is actually the guy who invented it just missed the end of the First World War. He was just too late for it. So then he started to sell the idea of the Enigma machine to banks and railway companies and people who needed to keep secrets. And then the military took it up, the German military took it up in the 1920s. And at this time, was it thought to be uncrackable? Yes, so they did believe that it was unbreakable. I mean, if you talk to the people who really understood it, I mean, there are flaws in the machine, but the technology at the time couldn't break it. Yes. So so in that sense, yes, uh, it was unbreakable. But if you knew the passcode, you could always crack it. Yeah, exactly. So there's a difference between the decoder and the code breaker. The decoder has permission to, to... get the message back because he has the key to get the message back whereas your code breaker he doesn't have the key so he has to i don't know smash his way in to that code yeah so if it's a locked box it would be like force it's like a locked box exactly but so the encryption is only as good as you keep the key secret yeah exactly Uh, and there's a principle in cryptography that the the method of encryption is not the most important part it's the key that's the important part so on this machine, um, so at, you were just sort of playing with it just a moment ago. So we also noticed it's got spare light bulbs and spare plug board cables. So light bulbs are cl- because light, letters light up when you push a key to tell you what the letter changes to. But what does the plug board cables do? What's that about? So uh, just just to describe it to people so people can imagine it in yeah. their heads. I mean, it's it's it try to imagine an old-fashioned typewriter. If you're thinking of an old-fashioned typewriter, you're you're pretty much right. Uh, except, uh, unlike a typewriter, it doesn't have a carriage for printing on paper. It has two sets of letters. You've got the keyboard, and then a second set of letters above it called the lamp board. And these letters light up. So when you type in your message, your code lights up on the lamp board. So essentially what the machine is, it's just a large circuit. There's a battery in the machine and it's just a big circuit that makes, uh, which connects a battery to a light bulb. That's yep. it. That's it. it. And it turns on. But if I keep pressing the letter A, it doesn't always come up with a different letter. Exactly. Which so, is what yep. older ciphers were. Yeah, exactly. So if we uh, take a slightly closer look inside the machine, uh, if I press a letter, I'm pressing the letter A at the moment. If I repeatedly press the same letter, you can see there are moving parts inside the Enigma machine. So yeah, there's a cog turning round. Mm. Uh, these, these three things here at the top are called rotors because they rotate. See, it's not just a clever name. So inside these rotors, try and imagine lots of crisscross wires. Right, so we're, we're scrambling up the circuit. Now, each time I press a letter, 
the, rota- the rotor moves one place. Click, click, click. So the wires move. The internal wiring moves. So when a battery is connected to a bulb, I'll press a, li- I press a letter, battery connects to a bulb. I'll let go. It breaks the circuit. The rotors turn. The wires turn, which has the effect of connecting the battery to a different bulb. And so the bulb changes. The bulb that connects to the battery keeps changing. It's simply a circuit. Yeah, so it's n- the circuit is no more complicated than what we teach a primary school kid. Exactly. Bulb and light bulb. Exactly, that's all there is to it. But the, the clever part of the code then is, is the way that it keeps changing. So every single letter of the message is sent with a different code. And if we didn't do that, we'd end up with a very old type of cipher mm. called, I think, called Caesar cipher. And that's, yeah. that's basically where you just shift every letter by so much. Exactly. And a 12-year-old kid can solve it if they know how to. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Caesar cipher, which is named after Julius Caesar, uh, which is the simple, most simple sort of code you can have, really, the sort that kids do, where you, you shift the alphabet across one place or, or three places or something like that. If you want to make that a little bit harder, you can mix up the alphabet. But the problem with those sort of codes is that um, if uh, a letter, say the letter E, at the start of the message will still be the same or be encoded as the same thing, no matter which position in the message. It's the, the code is used for the whole message. So you can use this as a clue. Because E is the most common letter, uh, it becomes the most common symbol in the code. Really easy way to break the code. Frequency analysis. So this idea um, was, you know, was well known to the code breakers, uh, and they could break these sort of codes quite easily in the past. So it became necessary and possible in the 20th century to move away from sort of pen and paper methods and to use these sort of mechanical cipher machines. Yeah. So I think that might be a good place to move on to the next track. Just, uh, just before we do so, um, unfortunately, there's no webcam in the temporary studio we're in today. Um, thanks to Affinity DAB for hosting us. But uh, if you look on Twitter for the hashtag science of fiction, or one word, I've been posting some pictures and a video of um, James's demonstration just then, which is uploading extremely slowly over 3G. But in a few minutes, it'll be there. So just search on Twitter for it. Yeah. Uh, yep. uh, hash science of fiction, or I'm actually, that's easier. Search for that. Cool. Okay, and uh, we're just with that, we'll move on to the next track.
97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm hello and welcome back to camfm and this is for science and fiction uh do remember you can send in emails let's just look at my wall for our email address but it's got the wrong one it's studio at camfm.co.uk and also you can just type into the little online player thing underneath there's a box that you can just type in uh, we've had one email for already and i think it's quite a good one it's is this seriously an actual league machine a replica or a German original? So what I can confirm that this is an original Enigma machine. It's actually 75 years old, made in 1936, so just before the Second World War. It's an army Enigma machine. And the story is, the story I was told at least, it was found in a French field by an American serviceman, a cryptographer in fact, so he knew what he had, and he took it home, I guess, as a souvenir. And and the guy who found it, he died about 10 years ago. And so when he died, the machine was sold to Simon Singh. Simon Singh is the author of popular science books. Yep. Yeah, about 10 years ago, he wrote a book called The Code Book, all about the history of code breaking. So he bought this uh, so that he could uh, show it off to people, show it off to audiences, give talks about it, and show, uh, show it as an application of mathematics. And when he got bored of doing that, he started to employ someone to do it for him. And I'm the third person to take on this job since then. So it, which, by my reckoning, makes me the Tom Baker of Simon Sings. If Simon Singh regenerates. Yeah, if he regenerates, first, you know, he'll re- regenerate into Patrick Troughton. Eventually, down the line, me, I'm, yes, Tom. Have you ever been seen in the same room as him at the same time? 
there you go. You see, that that proves it. There's, there's, there's no way anyone can know if you are, in fact, a, a new form of Simon Singh or not. Simon Singh is talking at the Science Festival. Okay, we'll have to put the two of you together and uh, see if something terrible And he happens. says he's bringing his Enigma machine. Timey-wimey. <laughs> yeah, so, so when he says he's bringing his Enigma machine on, it will be this Enigma machine. Um, in fact, Simon has two. You have oh. to have two. Otherwise, how can you send each other messages? That's what we do at night. We just send each other messages on our Enigma machines. Aww. Yeah. So... So, so I guess we didn't actually say what that last song yeah, was. Yeah, we didn't, did we? Uh, it was uh, Babel by Massive Attack from an album I can't remember, but it's very good and you should buy it. Um, so so Babel, of course, refers to the biblical story of the Tower of Babel um, in which um, uh, God um, tore down the said tower, which the, the, the people, humans were trying to build to get to, find, to, get to heaven directly and um, caused all the different tribes to speak different languages, whereas up until that point they spoke in the same language. So by dividing people and dividing their means of communication, um, it forced like, humanity back back into its place. Perhaps I've misrepresented this. Sorry. Maybe it's in the apocrypha. Who knows? Um, but the point is, it's to do with language, and that's where presumably Babel Fish comes from in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The wonderful fish you shove in your ear. Exactly. Although some people mispronounce it as Babel Fish, which I suppose all equ- equally well works. Perhaps that is how you pronounce Babel. But well, who knows? Because the languages were splintered. Exactly. The original pronunciation is lost in the midst of time. And fiction. <laughs> but and but the reason we're talking about Babel and different languages is because you can think of codes as languages, like like languages are. Uh, so languages are sort of a type of code. And this was, in fact, used to great effect in World War II by the American army. Shall we, shall we do this story? Yes. We do this story. Okay, let's do this story. So, so it was the Americans who decided to employ Navajo Indians as communication officers. The point being that the language of Navajo was so different from any European or Asian language, it was essentially a code. Only people in the Navajo tribe knew how to speak it. In fact, they had only five other people outside the Navajo tribe could speak the language and they had a list of that and they all lived in America. So they knew exactly who could speak that language. So with the Navajo Indians speaking to each other in their own language, it was as if it was a code. And presumably, when you say different, it's because the grammar and all those things which you normally rely on. So you can't start going, oh, this word's just this word because the words don't look the same. It, it was developed separately from you know, the, you know, the old world. And you might imagine that um, typical cryptoanalysis techniques uh, might not work on, on, on this. You, could, you couldn't simply treat it as yeah, a cipher or whatever because the, the structure is completely different. So even if you did perform, even if you did manage to transcribe these unfamiliar sounds and tones and then try to do some kind of statistical analysis, you could figure out perhaps which, which sounds were more common than others. But... Um, determining like much if any meaning from them would be effectively impossible at least within the relatively short period of the, a war that's that's right what you would need is a sort of rosetta stone which mm. is also what happened with the old hieroglyphics the ancient egyptian writing hieroglyphics was lost in the midst of time their meaning was lost and they you know when they saw a picture of a bird cup at one point, scholars thought this literally meant picture of a bird, this is a bird, this is a cup. And what, in fact, is true is that these are letters. These are sounds, just and as they are now. of course, now. the language is actually still spoken because it's Coptic. Yeah, yeah well, it I was... Mean, it's it, changed. It's like saying that people... Middle English to English, but it's Yeah, but, but, the, but the, uh, the, the meaning of the hieroglyphics, they were lost. Uh, so uh, it was only later... 
they could translate things like names. When they looked at names like Ramesses, in, in, you know, and they're, they're highlighted in, uh, I think they're called cartouches, uh, they're highlighted because uh, they're important names. And it's quite nice because Ramesses, so Ra, son of, uh, god of sun, so the, Ramesses, the name Ramesses starts with her son. So Ra, and it goes yeah. on Ramesses. So you, they, they could start to think, well, hang on. It, is this is, is this a pun they're doing, or is this actually a language like like we have it? And so they they did find the Rosetta Stone, which, which had the same yeah, well, it's got three different languages on it, though some of it snapped off. Yeah, that's right. But it had uh, the same uh, announcement in uh, ancient Egyptian and ancient Greek, which we could then use. To work Does out. it also have one of the linear A's or linear B's on it? It's yeah, it's yeah, it's two. I think it may be two versions of uh, hieroglyphics and then ancient Greek. Okay. Uh, there, there was a separate, um, similar discovery of something which allowed uh, either linear A or linear B to be uh, deciphered. Whereas whichever one it was not found on such a tablet is still, I believe, untranslated. Or yes, un- because they have nothing to connect it to, so they have no idea what the language is. So one thing I was interested in, if you get these Native Americans who presumably have only lived in their Navajo tribe, when you put them on the battle lines in Japanese back, back front line, as it were, how do they start describing things like battleships and aeroplanes, which presumably some of these things they come across and made words for, but they kind of had everything. You're right, so they would have problems, a, a limitation of the language describing things like tank uh, and you know, a submarine. And so they would use words like um, you know, eagle and, and you know, large fish or... I metal think, fish. Metal fish, yeah, something like that. Uh, and so that would what they would use in place of other other things that they didn't have words for in their own language uh, it, it it also illustrates the the difference between a code and a cipher so a cipher uh, works on the level of the individual letters of a message uh, so you'll change you know, one letter into something else uh, a code on the other hand will change a phrase or a whole word into another word so a cipher is is lends itself more to mathematical analysis uh for a code you kind of need a a code book like a dictionary literally with with the code phrases on one side and what they mean in english on the other side the problem with the code book is they're not very flexible so it has to be one of these prescribed messages and if you lose the code book well that's the whole code gone and they're not easy to replace yeah, printing off and making code books and distributing those, that's not easy to do. And you've lost your keys. And you've lost, you've lost the whole thing. So a cipher, on the other hand, will give you a, a simple method like, you know, oh, add three to the letter, that's Caesar cipher, that's you know, a really easy one. But, you know, add three to each letter, and then you can change that the next day. You know, today's code is add four. Today's code is add six. And so it has more flexibility, and of course you can write any message you want. And um, this is exactly what goes on in the Enigma machine, you can change where you start your rotors. Can, and can you switch the rotors around as well? That's right. So there are three rotors in the machine. Uh, they actually had a box of five to pick from for the standard Enigma machine. So you would pick three rotors from a box of five, you put them into the machine. Each rotor has 26 starting positions. Uh, when uh, the right-hand rotor does a full revolution, it kicks the middle rotor one place. 
So that's just a bit like a counter on a screen. Right? It's it kind of like a myelometer. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like hands on a clock. So when one goes all the way around, the next hand goes click one place. When the second, uh, when the middle rotor does the full revolution, it will kick the third rotor one place. And you can change the kick or where the kick is relative to the internal wiring. There's a little notch you can move. So that's another change you can make. And then finally, the plug board, which we nearly talked about and then kind of drifted yep. off, didn't we? Uh, the plug board at the front... It's kind of like an old-fashioned telephone switchboard. So you've got lots of wires, lots of plugs, and it connects uh, 20 letters of the alphabet into, t- into 10 pairs. So you might connect two letters together into a pair, A and T. And two letters in a pair swap over. So, so a that's T, a bit T like T. your really simple cipher. Beginning. That's just, that's so yeah, the plug. So the plug board first start. It's static. It wouldn't change on a, on a daily basis. It would it would be static, and yes, it would connect. Yeah, twenty letters into ten pairs. Yeah, like yeah, like A and T and T become say. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, I think that's a good time to move on. I think Will's put some more stuff up onto the Twitter feed. Yeah, we have we have a picture of James together with his real actual nineteen um, thirties Enigma machine. Um, so if you want any other particular. Th- aspects of the machine photographed to give us a shout while I, it's here. I'm particularly pleased to notice that the uh, keyboard layout is the Quartz lay- layout still used in German-speaking countries today, um, which is only because I'm a nerd and I like keyboard layouts. Yeah, you've used some really strange one which nobody else can understand. Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Okay, so um, on the conclusion of strange keyboard layouts, I th- do definitely make sure you email in with anything you want to find out about this machine because we're certainly not going to have one around in the studio next month. Uh, well, actually, we're not here because uh, we're going to take off for Christmas holiday, but Certainly, you'll be a long time without a chance to see one of these things, so do send in any requests you have, and apart from setting things on fire, we'll try and do what we can. From Russia with love I fly to you Much wiser since my goodbye to you I've traveled the world to learn I must return from Russia with love seen places, faces, and smiled for a moment, but oh, you haunted me so. You'd say no To Russia I flew But there and then I suddenly knew through 
to you from Russia CamFM.co.uk On air and online Your CamFM So that was From Russia With Love by uh, Matt Monroe, did you say? Matt Monroe, yeah, the yeah. Uh, singing bus driver, I think he was known as. Uh, he was famous at the time, it's kind of like in an X-Factor way, he was famous at the time for being a regular you know, bus driver who suddenly had this amazing singing voice. Uh, maybe it's like a Susan Boyle kind of thing. And he, did, he became famous that way. He did better than the um, second Bond guy, uh, George Lazenby, who just was the highest being advert man who then flopped... <laughs> Yeah, well, so, oh, don't get me started on George. I love the George Lazenby film. I think it's great. I think he made a mistake of just doing one. And I, I, I don't think he didn't want to do another one, did he? I thought he was told I think he was advised by his agent, oh, you're James Bond now, you're really famous, you don't need to do another one, uh, which was a complete mistake. But people really didn't like that movie because, obviously, the ending. They didn't like the movie because of the ending. I like it because of the ending. It's a great film. The the score by John Barry is fantastic. You've got Telly Savalas, you've got Diana Rigg in that film. We're, we're, we're drifting off topic. But no, you're allowed to on this show. It's one of my... It's my favourite... Uh, Bond film but we, we were playing From Russia With Love because it does have a connection with the Enigma machine the plot of From Russia With Love is about James Bond uh, delivering a Russian cipher machine uh, called uh, Lecter I believe in the film uh, in the book it was called Spectre which they couldn't use because they decided to use that name for the name of Blofeld's secret organisation instead so, so they had to deliver this uh, Russian cipher machine and this story is inspired by the story of Enigma because Ian Fleming was in naval intelligence during the Second World War. Oh, and of course, naval intelligence there was a lot of things with Enigma machines because the Navy yeah, so, them. so they were very keen on capturing this. We were talking about 1940. They were very keen on capturing a naval Enigma machine because they hadn't been able to break that one. They broke the army and the Luftwaffe, but not... So the army and the Luftwaffe used the normal one, whereas mm. the uh, Navy had an extra rotor? The That happened a couple of years later. Oh, OK. Yeah, no, and it's so confusing. There's so many parts to this, the story of Enigma. Uh, but that happened a couple of years later. But we were struggling with the naval Enigma because they were using it properly, uh. whereas the Luftwaffe and the army were being a bit sloppy with the way they were using it. And we were using these human errors to break the code. So what sort of sloppiness was this? Uh, so the sort of thing like... Um, so you were, the operators were allowed to use... or sorry, allowed to choose their own rotor starting positions at the beginning uh, of... so for the message. So each message was sent with its own individual starting position. Now what you had to do was choose your starting position and you would set... so you pick three letters and you would send that in plane at the beginning of the message. You would then use the Enigma machine itself to send another three letters in code. And that secret setting was used for the rest of the message. So you've got three plain letters, three secret letters, which are then used for the rest of the message. So you should be picking six random letters. Yeah. And people being people would start to pick six-letter words. So if you get uh, B-E-R 
at the start of the message, you think the next three letters will be L-I-N, Berlin. L-O-N-D-O-N, London. If it starts with H-I-T... I can give a guess. <laughs> yes, you can, you can guess that for yourself. Yes, exactly. And so it's that sort of human mistake that they were using and they were exploiting to break the army and the Luftwaffe code. So the, the naval people were actually more strict about how to do these sort of things. And so it was harder to break. So we needed to, we wanted to capture the documentation, not the machine itself necessarily, uh, but the documentation. And so Ian Fleming uh, had, uh, had to come up with a plan called Operation Ruthless to uh, capture an Enigma machine. He, they had a German bomber, a captured German bomber, which they were going to uh, crash into the English Channel. Hopefully, uh, a German ship would then pick up the people, uh, which would, we would then hijack the German ship yeah. and, and steal all the documentation and information. Uh, but that operation was cancelled in the end, unfortunately. They didn't find an appropriate ship to, to pick on. Uh, but it's all very James Bond, but yet all very real. So this is what Ian Fleming was drawing upon. Okay. Were there no issues from the official secrets people of him publishing these stories of actual military operations or at least actual cancelled military operations? Well, I guess uh, he changed just enough detail to uh, to save him from that sort of problem. Uh, but cert- yeah, certainly there are there are parts of Bond. Yeah, novels, which um, must have been based on his experiences. But that's how you write good stories. So I think there's, I, th- I think, um, I, I haven't watched From Us for Love in a very long time, but I, was, it, was, it, was it that or in another film where um, Bond or others were hiding messages on, on microfilms or in, in um, like, f- photographic film? Yeah, so, uh, so microfilm, I think that was another uh, Bond film, but uh, shrinking a message onto microfilm was something they did a lot in the 1960s. It's a way to hide your secret message rather than encrypting it. It's a way of hiding your message, uh, which is called steganography. Uh, so in fact, in the 60s, it's certainly early on when they were doing these micro dots, they were, they were printing them on like a, a type of plastic. So if you, if you held your letter up to the light and you saw something glinting, something shiny on there, they think, what's that? that? That might be a micro dot. Uh, but this idea of hiding your messages uh, is still used today. Uh, it's, people might have heard of uh, digital steganography, which is hiding a photograph or a message within a digital photograph. So that's been used, well, it's, that sort of idea has been used on album covers. I know a few bands have done it for, for just, just for kicks, just so people could find it. Um, yeah, and I was reading an um, article the other day about someone who's made an iPhone app which does exactly this. You pick, a, you pick an image from your photo library, then you pick a second image that you'd like to keep secret. And I, as far as I can tell, it just cranks down the contrast on that image. And at the other end, it must, it, it's, you, you, you either supply it with the same original image, or I believe it's this, this app somehow figures out where the errors are because you can perform error analysis on the main image to figure out where it's been altered to reveal some if not all of the detail from the original message uh, the author said it's been surprisingly popular among teenage audiences i wonder what they're doing with it um the other thing this reminds me of is um i know we've got down a list of things to talk about is in the cryptonomicon mm. uh, i was talking there and we we didn't know if it was a fictional thing or not because that story's quite good at having fiction and non-fiction melded quite together but it was this idea of doing telephone calls which encrypted and they use a record at each end, so one-time code, which one end they add the noise on, <coughs> onto the signal, and on the other end they um, remove it again, just using an LP deck, because that's for the technology of time, so Turing and this fictional character, I think Lawrence's name, can have a conversation across the channel, and that's obviously quite an 
interesting example. Yeah, so so this I haven't read the book myself. Yeah. So this is in audio, is it? This yes. is actually audio. So uh, it sounds plausible, doesn't it? I'm not sure if it's true or not. I'm not sure if it's real. It certainly sounds plausible. The idea is used in cryptography. Um, if we go back to World War Two again, that seems to be where we are at the moment. Uh, the uh, the army, the the military were using the Enigma machine, uh, but uh, Hitler. And the top level of the Nazi party were actually using a different machine, a better code machine called Lorenz. And the principle of the Lorenz is very similar to the principle you've just described. What you would do would be uh, to add obscuring characters onto your message. By add, I mean, so if you added the letter A, that means if A is 1 and B is 2 and Z is 26, yeah, that sort of thing, you would just add one letter. Uh, so you would add a string of these letters to each letter of your message and uh, the way that it worked is that uh, you could then subtract that again and get your message back so presumably they had to distribute um a set of words ahead of time to allow people to communicate uh, without first exchanging the code word so it's a pre-exchange key yeah well in fact what they had was a, a machine like enigma yeah so so yes they had to have a setting for that yeah you're right uh, so they had to have a setting and then uh, they would connect this lorenz cipher machine to uh, a teleprinter uh, so you may have seen teleprinters you know it, people like stock exchange people ticker tape coming out and and so it would then start to add obscuring characters into what you type into the machine and then it would get removed again automatically so it was quite advanced. It was more advanced than Enigma. It would automatically then get removed at the other end. But presumably the reason we had less of them because they're also more expensive. Uh, I imagine so, yeah. Okay, well, um, just want to say thank you to the email in from Mark. Uh, yeah, I'm so, so, we just got an email saying this music's a bit distorted, so I'll try and welcome that during the next song. Uh, as I say, we are in a new studio today, so we're all getting to grips with everything in here. But thanks for letting us know. If you have any other comments like that, do send them in. Uh, also, as I say, if you've got any requests with the Enigma machine, do also send those in.
97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm hello and welcome back i hope it sounded a bit better we did drop the levels a bit um if you're by person or person picking up on the quality of the signal if it wasn't any better uh, i'll drop some an email in the tech department so um yes we were that was actually very nice secrets this year by the silver sun pickups um, which is a, it's the first song on a pretty good album, which, which, we, which yep. Andy and I both recommend. So you should listen to several some pickups. So just before the break, we, were, we, we started talking about Cryptonomicon. Um, I don't think we actually mentioned what it is. For those who are not massive Neil Stevenson fans, uh, Cryptonomicon is a novel by Neil Stevenson, who is an author of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, it tends to border on the overly technical for its own sake. Um, Cryptonomicon is no no exception. It has, you know, 20-page explanations of what Linux is, um, extensive descriptions of various types of cryptanalysis and, like, security attacks, including Vanek Freaking. Vanek Freaking, though, is actually quite interesting, even though it never actually been achieved. So it's to do with measuring... uh, reading the contents of someone's uh, CRT display uh, by measuring, uh, from, the, from the next room, by measuring variations in the electromagnetic radiation produced by the screen. Um, and in, in the book, they managed to reproduce the uh, subject's target screen exactly. I'm not, I mean, it's, all this stuff is highly fictionalized. But one thing in the novel which actually isn't fictionalized is at one, at one section, um, 
there's a character who's in prison and he's trying to get messages in and out of prison um, without having arrived with any equipment at all. Um, and via an elaborate sequence of events which we won't go into, he's provided with a deck of cards and an algorithm which uses the deck of cards um, as basically the Enigma machine updated for portability. So as you, there's a particular way that you cut and shuffle the cards to encrypt letters um, on this 52-letter uh, alphabet. Um, but the neat thing is that the order the cards are in when you first receive them is the secret key for this session. So even if someone understands the algorithm, they have to know exactly what the deck of cards you, you, you were given as your care package from your family were to be able to decrypt your messages. And have re received exactly the same messages because every time you encrypt or decrypt something, you distort the pack. Exactly. Just as in the Enigma machine, as I understand it, the um, encrypting one letter alters, moves with the rotor ahead and changes the um, electrical connections in the device. Uh, as you encrypt one letter using the deck of cards, um, of course, the ordering of the deck of the card changes, so you can't simply... So, so you have to you have to intercept the entire stream of message. You can't just take one of the pieces of paper in isolation. Which is pretty neat. It was developed by Bruce Schneier, who's a, a real cryptographer in the real world. It, it, I, I haven't read the book myself, but that certainly sounds like a very imaginative uh, way to send a secret message. And this is, this is part of the fun. Yep. This is the part of the fun of cryptography. Uh, you can let your imagination go wild. Um, you know, what, you know, how can you send a secret message? What's the most difficult way you can think of? What little tricks can you do? And the only thing you have to be able to do, uh, the only rule, is that you have to be able to reverse that to get your original message back. So we've got 10 minutes left, and that sort of leads us on to the sort of two types of cryptography I think we should cover, which is uh, sort of RSA which is, of course, quite modern cryptography, and then moving on to the future with quantum cryptography, which I hopefully we can touch on and still understand, because I know it eludes me quite a lot of time. So when I talk about RSA, of course, we're talking about the typical idea. Instead of having a code where you have the same key as each other, you have two different keys, don't you? Yeah, so that's uh, called public key encryption. So, yes, you have two keys. One is a, a public key. Uh, so imagine, okay, I've got uh, a secret box, and so you, if you put your message into the secret box and you close it and say you, you're sending me a message, so you've, you've put your message into the box and you've locked it. Now, if Will sends me a secret message too, that means he has the same key as you. It means Will's allowed to read your messages that you're intending to send to me. Right? That's bad. So instead, uh, what I can do is say I'm the bank, is that I give Will and, you, and yourself, if I give you uh, a padlock then you can put your message into the box. You can lock it with the padlock, but the problem is you don't have the key to open it again. No one has the key to open it again. Well, Neither that's not a problem. It's a benefit, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So you can, you can shake the padlock, you can try and open it, but no one has the key. There's only one person with the key, which is the bank itself. So if you send me now the message, I can unlock it and get that message. So using two keys, one to lock and one to unlock. The unlock key is a private key. Yeah. This was used, uh, well, a derivative of, of this model of cryptography was used in The Quantum Thief by Hanu Ramajemi. Ramajemi? I forget. The Quantum Thief. It's, 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 it's like a long name. Pretty, pretty hard sci-fi novel. Um, and, uh, but at, very, at one point in the novel, it, it comes to pass that people can share their thoughts using a, a descendant of public key cryptography. So everyone has their own public key. And they can... Um, and So others can... So if I want to send Andy one of my thoughts, I can look up his public key in some kind of trusted database and then I can just 
basically re-encrypt that thought using his public key so he he can think it, Um, but only he can think it, supposedly, of course. We hope. This goes wrong in the novel. Yeah, so um, what we want now is to move on to quantum cryptography then, because you just mentioned the quantum thief. Uh, So what... Why is quantum cryptography like this big thing? You know, everyone says it's going to be uncrackable, on this, on that. Presumably, it's not as simple as that. So there, there are two things which are, are can be easily confused. So there's, there's quantum computers, and there's quantum cryptography. So if we talk about quantum cri- computers first, uh, this so uh, this hypothetical idea, this theoretical idea that we're trying to make of, of building a new type of computer using uh, quantum physics. Yep. Uh, the problem is, or the, what we hope is that. By using that sort of technology, uh, encryption like RSA, which actually, use, although I didn't say it before, it actually uses prime numbers and multiplying prime numbers together. And and if you want to uh, get the message back, you have to factorize the, the number. And that is a very difficult thing to do with a classical computer. So the idea is that to crack it will take longer than the lifetime of the universe. Exactly, exactly. So it takes too long. It's like Enigma in the past, when the technology did not exist to break that code. RSA today uh, is unbreakable in the sense that the technology does not exist to break it in any sort of reasonable amount of time. If quantum computing happens, uh, then... Uh, there, it has been shown that there are algorithms, there are ways that we can factorize numbers into their prime factors easily or quickly, relatively quickly. And uh, if that's true, if that's the case, then uh, RSA encryption, what we use on the internet, will be no good anymore. So we will have to come up with something else then. Uh, so quantum cryptography is a new idea it's re- and it really is new it's only a f- couple of years old but it has got to the point of being made and produced and and the idea is you transmit your key for your code using particles of light so you transmit using particles of light but uh, the, the clever thing about particles of light is is, is if you look at them uh, they change so you will know if the message has been observed. If someone's trying to steal your, the key, which has been transmitted by these particles of light, it will change the key and the machine will shut down. So when we're saying particles of light, we mean each bit of data is sent on Send one photon. Yes. So it's not like someone can get some of the light because it's a quantum block of information that yes. can't be halved. Yes. That's right. So, so and now... I only know this really uh, in the way that, you know, in a sort of popular science sort of way. So obviously at the other end, the person that the message is intended for must have permission to read that key without shutting it down and then they can... But it's less of a cryptography technology, more of a way of knowing someone's tampered with your phone line. Exactly. Uh, But if that's the case then, then you'll know that someone has tampered with the key. And so they are calling it an unbreakable code. So yeah, so it's but the main thing is we're worried about with all the cryptographers, we don't want eavesdroppers. So it does the same thing. Yeah, that's what it's avoiding. It's not a, a clever mathematical principle. It's a it's a channel to send a secret channel to send your key. But of course, it does require a lot of maths and physicists all to work together to actually make it work. Absolutely. Okay. Um, right. Where do you want to go, Will? Where do we want to go? Um, so. We've spoken a lot about the Enigma machine, and there's, a kind, of, there's kind of a big white elephant here. That there's a film called Enigma, uh, which um, I haven't seen myself, but um, I, I, as I understand it, it's, it's, a, it's you know a big drama about you know trying to capture an Enigma machine or something. Um, perhaps how accurate is it, and how 
close to reality is this? Because you did a side screen on this, didn't you? I did do a yes. side. I introduced this at uh, the Cambridge Picture House uh, a couple of months ago. Because me and Will are going to do, be doing a science fiction for Alien in May next year or something. Oh, ridiculous. excellent. I, I must come. Um, <laughs> I, I, no, I'd like to see that. Uh, and it was good fun to do. Uh, but uh, So people complain to me. Uh, about the film Enigma, they say, "Oh, it's so inaccurate." And and do you know what? I'm going to defend the film. I think they're wrong. I don't think it's that bad at all. Um, so I get people saying things like, "Oh, so you know, did you see that scene with the with the the field of wheat? Well, they didn't grow that type of wheat in 1940. <laughs> that they don't have a time machine. Yeah, they, they, the guy filmed it because it was a nice colour. Yeah, I mean, a, it's a bit like, you know the new Lord of the Rings movies." I am aware you know, of them. You know they run through a, cor- a cornfield at one point because the hobbits are quite sure the corn's well above them. I had someone complain to me that it was sweet corn that was growing. And I was thinking, because it's a British author and therefore corn just means the food product of the yeah. area, so Tolkien would have meant British corn, not sweet corn. And I just sat there going, I'm sure they use sweet corn because it makes the hobbits look shorter. Probably, yeah, <laughs> probably. So, and so this really annoyed, and this really annoys me when people talk to me about Enigma, and they they'll say like uh, the the main character, a man called Tom Jericho, that's the name of the character in the film, Codebreaker. They say, oh, isn't it terrible that they replaced Alan Turing with this fictional character, and you know, he's meant to be Alan Turing, but he's not even gay, and you know he he acts nothing like Alan Turing. Well, if the character has a different name, acts nothing like Alan Turing. And, final nail in the coffin, Alan Turing was actually in America at the time this film was set. The character isn't meant to be Alan Turing. He is an amalgamation of various British codebreakers. I think that's really unfair to do that. And I think it's actually very good and and historically quite accurate compared to worst worst films like U571. See, one thing that's confused about U571, did they... There was presumably an American mission to get an Enigma machine because we didn't tell Americans everything. There was uh, 15 missions that actually ended with capturing Enigma material. And uh, two were by Canadians. Uh, Twelve then were by British. And only the very last one at the end of the war was an American And that's U-571. And no, the U-571 was uh, made up. (laughs) This is the problem. The U-571 is very made up compared to Enigma it is very made up it's almost as if they didn't care well it's reason if they want to make a wartime action movie capturing Enigma machine it's just a MacGuffin to drive the plot exactly exactly which is fair enough but the it is so wild so wildly far from the truth that uh, I'd, I'd even say it's, yeah, it's not historically based it's just it's just fiction they might as well have had a spaceship in there I can't <laughs> Really interesting film. Uh, I can't actually remember if they say it's based on fiction. Anyway, really interesting film. Uh, I can't actually remember if they say it's based on fiction. Anyway, that's the end of the show. So thank you for you both coming along. Uh, It's been great to have you. Thanks for bringing me a machine. And thank you, Will. And thank you for listening. Good night.